The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, it is a great privilege that we can, that you invite us to and allow us to and have made the ability, we can come to you, sit before you in your presence, speak to you and listen to you. This is a great privilege. Thank you for it. As we sung and thought about just now, there is a time when this coming to you and speaking to you and listening to you will turn from prayer in spirit to conversation with sight. You will come. You will send the Son. He will come. He will gather us together and we will live forever in your very presence. This is a greater privilege still. The ability to communicate, to commune with you now and one day then differently. Thank you for that. You provided that privilege for us. We take it up now and talk to you knowing that you hear and that you are inclined to answer. And so we come asking, would you this morning open your word and talk to us. Father, by your Spirit, would you communicate the truth to us in ways that we can hear, understand, grasp, and with it then would you change us? Would you teach us this morning a little bit more about what it means to be a follower of yours, a little bit more about how to walk in communion with you now here on the earth? If from this passage, Lord, you need to speak correction to us, then please do that. Speak correction and speak it in light of encouragement, please. Encouragement about what wonder it is to be able to walk with you now and to one day walk with you face to face. Lord, remind us of that. Lay that over the whole sermon this morning. And if there is a need for correction, correct us in light of encouragement, please. Would you please give clarity to my words and clarity to our listening? Remove distraction, physical distraction, whether it be climate or sound or light or whatever. Remove all those things. But also, Lord, please, by your spirit, would you intervene now in the room and remove spiritual distraction? Would you clear away anything that would be a barrier of sin, anything that would be a spiritual barrier that would keep us from hearing clearly and responding open-heartedly to your teaching. Have your way with us, please, this morning. Build up your church. Honor the Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Given the fact that a number of men are away from us this morning at the, the church men's retreat, We'll be taking a, a pause from our usual study of the Gospel of Luke to consider a different passage, one from the middle of 1 Corinthians 7. It is a passage that I mentioned last week in teaching in Luke 9. We've been looking at Jesus' call, his, his high and, and challenging call to us to be disciples, followers of Jesus. And, and in the flow of last week's sermon, I mentioned this passage. It's not a complete detour from Luke, but it is something a little bit different something that we're going to look at in 1 Corinthians, try to understand what's there, but bringing it back into the conversation about discipleship. We've been looking in Luke 9 about Jesus' call to discipleship, and we saw there, the first, the commandments, deny yourself and take up your cross. We looked at that, and then we, we pressed a little further into the passage to see that what he means by that is come willingly beneath his model and his instruction, particularly as it regards his 
his teaching, his call to us to follow him into his kingdom mission. His spreading of and building up of the kingdom of God to others out there, to others that are closer within the body. That's what he's about, and he calls us to follow that, to, to work to establish and build his kingdom rather than our own kingdoms. And last week we looked at that a little more closely to, to notice that he, he contains in his teaching there a warning against something that is very common for us, the pursuit of the American dream. Seeking to, to gather together a life and then secure it, hold on to it by the gathering together of of possessions and experiences and endeavors and opportunities all provided to us here on earth. But the temptation is not just to use them, but to use them and find life in them and to live for them, to live defined by them. So we saw the caution there against that. We're going to give a little more time to, to what I mentioned very briefly in that conversation last week. I alluded to 1 Corinthians 7 because in there, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul gives us a little bit of instruction about how to properly use all the stuff that we have here on earth. How to use it well but not live for it. So I'm going to go to that passage this morning, look at it, and particularly look at the, the context in which it sits, the immediate context in which it sits, and help us to think a little bit more about time the necessity of using time well. Not just things, but time. So we're going to see what Paul says and try to understand it very briefly in its proper context, but I'm going to be looking at it and taking it and applying it back towards our conversation about discipleship. And my goal is that we would understand a little bit more about how our use of time affects our following of Jesus. Kind of where I'm going this morning. Let me read 1 Corinthians 7. I'm just going to read verses 29 to 31, just a couple of verses, then make two observations from this passage that I'm going to point back towards Luke. Here's 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. That's the passage. It sits in the context of his discussion about marriage, but then he himself, Paul himself, moves on past marriage and singleness to talk about a whole host of other things. You hear him come back to marriage here, but he's got a wide scoping view, as do we. So from this passage, we make two observations. Here's the first one, very simply. The time is short. The time is short. This is the fact laid before us in the text. The beginning and the concluding statements, the part we looked at last week is bracketed, beginning and end, bracketed by two statements that, that address this issue of time. Starting in verse 29, the appointed time has grown very short. Or as the NAS, the New American Standard puts it, catching the grammar a little bit, the time has been shortened. The idea there is of shortening something, of drawing up something. If you kind of think of like a sail on a ship, you, you gather up the sails on a sailing ship, you either let them down or you draw them up, you shorten them. That's what he's saying. The sentence is saying that time has been shortened. Not just time in general. Of course, he doesn't mean that, that somehow clocks move faster. Or like Jesus has his finger on a fast-forward button or something. He's not, he's not saying that at all. Nor exactly, as he's saying, I'm going to come back to this later in the application time, but nor is he exactly saying time is short. We don't know that time is short, as in there's just a little bit of time left. It's been a few thousand years since Paul wrote this, after all. It's, it's been a while. We, we don't know how much time there actually is. He's not saying time is short. He has a particular time in view. I'm very carefully saying the time. 
is short. He has some particular period. This is God's appointed time. A time set by God in which he works in the world to accomplish his purposes until they are finished and the time is over. Another way of describing it would be if, if I were to say his time of salvation history is short. The time that begins with creation and moves all through him sending the Messiah, promising and then sending the Messiah, and then, and then the death, the life and the death of Messiah and his resurrection, this is the flow of time, of, of salvation history, and that will come to an end one day when Christ comes again and comes and he judges and he brings all of the creation to heal under his authority and he fixes, restores all things. Everything that has, is ruined and has fallen is made right again. There, there is a time that is moving and at a time that will happen. The end will come. Time determined by God and that, that time has now been shortened. Shortened by God the Father, when, as Paul puts it in Galatians 4, in the fullness of time he sent his son, born of a woman, to redeem. He, he acted and he, he initiated, he, he conducted a certain action, sending the son to begin the, the end game, to begin the final period of this time. Think of it like this. I know of a, of a complicated game that has a lot of different strategies involved in it, but it involves a large deck of cards, all shuffled, randomly shuffled, face down, of course, and the game is structured around turns of varying unknown length. During any turn, cards off this deck are one by one turned over and Players can pursue any number of, of varied and complicated options, strategies, and plans. But a turn comes to an end after the second of two particular cards is turned over. And then the turn ends immediately and suddenly. After the second of those two particular cards. They're in there somewhere. And play inevitably goes on with players pursuing all kinds of things, carelessly, almost thoughtlessly, until the first of those two particular cards is turned up. And then everybody's attention gets focused. Everybody begins to concentrate and begins to be certain that they get done whatever their particular plan needs to happen. They cut off other extraneous things and begin to say, I need to get this done because... Because the first card has turned up. And everybody knows that when the second card comes, that's the end, immediately and suddenly, right there. Nobody knows when the second card comes, but the first one has already come, and it's sitting right there on the table. Everybody's attention is focused to get done what must be done before the second comes. What Paul's saying here is that God has turned the first card. The first one has come. Time has been drawn short. No one knows when the next card comes. Christ has come. He has been crucified. He has been raised from the dead. And as, as Luke 9 puts it, if you remember back then, he has already come into heaven in glory and he sits at the right hand reigning. His kingdom already is. And it is coming. When? Nobody knows. Nobody's certain of that. But what we are certain of is that that time is no longer indefinite. It is short and it is clear. There is the beginning and somewhere out here, think of the game, no one knows. Is, is the second card next? Or is it three down? Or is it 30 down? Nobody knows. But when it comes, the end. This is what's going on in the world right now. We live in a time that is short, and there is an immediacy, an, an urgency to this period right now. I don't know how long it's going to last. You don't know how long it's going to last. 
But Paul's pressing on us this reality of urgency. And if you're not a Christian this morning, think about this and consider it. Something is going on in the world right now. There is a ticking clock. And the warning, the first sound of the bell has already happened. And when the next one comes, it's over. Right now in the world, God has sent the Son to gather in his people. And even now, if you're not a Christian, right now he is speaking to you, calling you, come. And there is an urgency to that because we, we are often inclined to say, I'll think about that. Let me get back to that tomorrow. Is there a tomorrow? I mean, statistically, probably. But maybe not. Is there a tomorrow for you? There might be a tomorrow for me, but not for you. Statistically, there probably is, but maybe not. And there is an urgency pressed upon all of us here that says the time is short. And if you're not a Christian, please consider this. God has acted, sent Christ, and has said, that should tell you something. He's coming again. And when he comes, he will judge all of us, and he will judge us by an immutable, an unchangeable standard, his holy law, and we will all fall. So what he has done now is he has sent Christ as a merciful hope for you. You can't stand in the judgment before God because God says all of us are sinners. Here is his holy law, this unchangeable standard, and every single one of us, you included, has broken it and stands under the wrath of God. That is a reality. A reality that will be answered. There will be a reckoning at some point in the future when the second comes. And so what he did when he sent Christ the first time is he provided another great and awesome reality, a merciful alternative to the wrath of God falling on you, the wrath of God instead falling on Christ. You must, gloriously you can, but you must trust Christ to be saved. If you're not a Christian, please hear, please understand that time is short. I don't know how many days there are left, but I do know that we are in the end game. Trust him today, now, for your own good. Christian, he's writing to the church. This is more spoken to us to alert us, us who already are Christians, to alert us to the fact that the time is short. And he's done that to tell us, here's, here's a reality that, that covers all of our lives, all of our life, and we should, in light of that reality, there's a certain way that we should live. In light of the time being short. This should make us think and in particular, it should make us think about time and how we use it. Now, as I said earlier, on the one hand, he's not talking about the ticks of a clock exactly. He's talking about this salvation history time. True. And there isn't any sense in which Christ's coming has meant there is less of salvation history time. It's always been known by God when Christ's going to come again. That's not, that's not going to change. It's not variable. And it's always been known how long I'm going to live. That's not going to change. It's not variable. So, yes. Granted. But, think of that game with those cards again. There's the deck. The second card is in there somewhere. It's not moving around. Nothing's changing. However, the presence of the first card sitting on the table focuses everybody's attention and makes us realize the next one's the end. And it draws every player to a sense of urgency. I must use the little time, I don't know how long it is, but the little time that I have left, I gotta be careful to use that rightly. 
There's no no more putting off of the important, no more postponing. The shortening of time encourages everyone to make the most of the ticks on the clock that we have. So the fact that the appointed time has grown very short, this this first reality here, the, the facts told us bracketing this passage then should lead us to to the second point of saying, then how am I supposed to live in this world? How am I supposed to use the time that I have here, given the fact that the time is shortened? As a Christian, how am I supposed to live? That's what takes us to the second observation. This second one, I think, so the first point is I'm thinking about how this, how this flows. The first point is something that, as a Christian, I already knew. You probably already knew as a Christian. And so what Paul does here is he puts that on the table. These Christians he's writing to, they already know that. He puts that on the table, leads into his discussion here, and finishes it off with that discussion. You know, this, is, this is true. Get this, see it, understand it, remember it. And then what happens here is that we are called, perhaps confronted, called to live in light of that. Here's here's my sentence. Spend your time living in the world as though the world actually is passing away. Spend your time living in the world as though the world actually is passing away. The time is short. There is an end. And kind of the the first card on the table says like, oh yeah, an end is coming. So spend your time as if that is true. Verse 49, time has been shortened. So from now on, Paul says, let those who have wives live as though they had none. We see Paul's larger context of of marriage and singleness kind of coming back here. And for the sake of how he wants his argument to flow, he left out husbands. But he, he could fairly say those who have spouses as if they have no spouses. Those who mourn as though not mourning, rejoice as though not rejoicing, buying as though they had no goods, dealing with the world as though not having dealings with the world. This is a very wide ranging list touched on it last week a little bit. It's not meant to be exhaustive exactly, but particularly there at the end, dealings with the world, it comes pretty close. It's wide. He means for us to live in the world, to actually deal with the world. This is not avoiding or leaving or excluding the world, but to actually to deal with the world But every one of those phrases has as though in it. There's a way we're supposed to deal and to think that isn't exactly the case, but we're supposed to kind of mentally almost pretend as if it is the case. It isn't, but think as if it is. There's a tension there we're supposed to hold on to all down through the line. Here's how he expects it to work. Take the the buying one, verse 30. Commerce. Those who who buy as though they had no goods. Buying is assumed. It's assumed, and it's fine. Just like being married is fine. It's a good gift from God to be enjoyed. Buying is assumed, and and when we buy things, we will, in fact, conduct a transaction that everybody knows I'm entitled to take this thing and walk out of the store with it. It's mine. I own it. And my neighbor knows he can't take it away from me because it's mine, not his. I do own it. That, that's, that's real. It's true. But he says, buy with a bit of detachment as though you don't own it. A certain bit of distancing from it as if you are, you are just temporarily using it. In, in your mind, thinking of it as a, as a temporary arrangement because the time is shortened and this all that I hold it, eventually... The second card's going to come up and it's going to be gone. So buy a house or buy a car, for instance, as if actually renting it. If you think about this, 
you sleep somewhere in what you call your bedroom. Probably, unless you built a house, somebody else used to sleep in that room and called it their bedroom. And eventually, someone yet again will sleep in that bedroom and call it their bedroom. Who owns it? Nobody. You buy a car, and maybe you sense some sense of excitement, but it, when you rent a car, even a brand new, awesome car, you, there's a certain bit of anxiety. I hope I don't scratch it because I know in three days I'm giving it back. It's not actually mine. He expects us to deal with the world, to buy, to, to have engagement with the world, with that sort of, it's not actually mine. I buy something. Even I get married or I mourn a situation in life. I engage in, with certain opportunities, all with a certain bit of, very carefully, not deriving my life from it, not living for it, not controlled or dominantly influenced by it. I have it, but I have it as if I don't have it. That's difficult for us. We are very inclined, we are very inclined, if you think of last week's sermon, to look at the things of this earth, to look at them and to, to try to derive life from them and, and significance and even joy and happiness from this stuff here. And we want to grab it and hold on to it and try to keep it. And Paul says, no. In light of the fact that the time is short, keep in mind all this is going away. That's true with all those things that he mentions. We can't touch on this last week, and in a real way, this is kind of review. But think about this. While that is potentially a challenge for anything in life, for us, a challenge to, to buy and to want to, to own it and, and, and derive life from it, it's a challenge for us to, to hold things open-handed for everything in life. For many of us, and ask yourself before God if this is you, it's, it's definitely me, and I think it's many of us. So ask if it's you. The greatest difficulty we face in denying ourselves and taking up our cross daily is the daily surrender of our schedules to Jesus and his call to kingdom mission in our time. To deny myself most personally, for you to deny yourself most personally, is to give up control of your calendar your appointment schedule, your vacation and holiday hours, your weekends and your evenings. How uncomfortable, how threatening it is to turn all that over to another person and let someone else dictate all of that for you. If you find yourself working for a company that tries to do that, and some companies try to do that, eventually you kind of grow a little bit resentful of that. They're, they're, the company, the bosses, kind of reach into all of your life to own everything. You grow a little bit resentful of that over time. And if you can, you start looking for another job. Because what you want, what we all want, what we expect is that, that no, this part of my life is mine. This, these hours, these days, I'm off. I'm out of the office. I'm on vacation. I want, I want to put that little thing on the end of my email that says, I won't respond until I come back on Thursday. I don't want it forwarded to my phone to have to respond to it right now on vacation in Bermuda. No. 
I, I, my family, I want some, some, some me time, some my time, some us time. The job will have to wait until I get back. And when this person, this job tries to encroach, we get resentful. We try to separate it and create space. And then Jesus says, nope, all of your life. Every single minute of it, all on the table. Every moment, all your waking hours, all your sleeping hours too. Give over your life to me, take up your cross again today and die to yourself. And do so keeping in mind that time is short. There is an urgency here. Every one of these minutes counts. How you use all this time for my kingdom purposes is critical. I have a mission to build my kingdom and I'm calling you into it to use all of your life with me as I'm modeled and taught to build my kingdom, not your own. And it is important because the world is passing away. All your evenings and weekends must be given to the king in the service of his kingdom. All your holidays, each and every morning, each and every afternoon, each and every evening. To which... Maybe you respond, hold on. Okay, let's deal with that. What I said was true. I tried to drive that emotionally. But you perhaps respond, as I respond as I think about it, all my weekends, each and every one. So there's no place for me and my family to participate in that Saturday morning soccer league. I have to give away to Jesus every Saturday morning too? Of course you do. Of course. He's the king, and time is short. How many Saturdays are there left before the end? I don't know. We must lay our Saturday mornings on the table, too. Every one of them. What else could deny yourself and take up your cross daily mean? Take up your cross daily except for Saturday? No. No. Don't squirm out from under this. Don't try to sl slide away. This is true. We are called to surrender ourselves and follow Christ, being willingly submitted to him on Saturdays too, and every Christmas break, and every Tuesday afternoon in class or at work, and every Thursday evening, no matter how hard and draining that day was. That's what it means to be a faithful disciple. See that. Surrender your time, your schedule, your calendar. Here, Lord, all of me, which particularly includes all of my time, the moments of my days on the table. Here, Lord. As I say that, you are perhaps a little uncomfortable or perhaps a little threatened by the absolute demand of that. Absolutely everything given over to Jesus Every evening when you feel drained and overwhelmed by the long day and want to collapse in front of the TV, and I point out, no. That moment, too, on the table. Surrender, deny yourself. Every Saturday when you want to just tune out and just go have a blast running around playing soccer. Nope, Saturday morning, too, on the table. For Jesus and his kingdom. You, you maybe feel a little bit, you're threatened by that, maybe a bit, a bit exasperated perhaps. How am I going to breathe in life? How am I going to relax and rest and, and live a little? And you sense that what I'm saying here, if it's true, you're trying to like pry your hand open and pry your life out of your hand. 
And that's very threatening. You, you sense being, something being taken from you. And the, the days of your life demand, the hours, the minutes of your life demanded from you. And you want to grab a hold of it and to save some of your life back for you. You want to save your life by keeping control of your time. Okay. So now see this. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You want to save your life. You want to hold on to it and keep charge of at least some of it for yourself. Thinking, I need that to, to, to breathe a little bit and to live. That's unbelief. That's unbelief. Which Jesus addresses by his spirit at work in you, Christian, not, we, we got to deal with, with how we think Jesus deals with us. Christian, Jesus, really honest to goodness, loves you. Denied himself and took up his cross to save you and give you life, life abundant. He's not out to rip you off. So when he sees this unbelief residing in us in a Christian, he addresses that not with a stick to beat it out of you, you nasty unbeliever. No, 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 no. He addresses that by his spirit living in you with a promise about profit. P-R-O-F-I-T. With a promise about profit profit about what really profits you supported by the evidence the whole evidence of his gospel work his saving of you proof that he's for you and that he has come to give you actually give you real life and that that life yes indeed it is in heaven and we must never forget that we must never overlook the fact that eternity is forever and it is incredibly meaningful Against that, this pales. It, it, it's, it's a brief whisper. It's gone. He means to say, I will give you life then. But that life then begins, it, it is attained now when we are born again. And it is meant to be experienced and even enjoyed now. He means to give you life now. And he tells you, you, you can't actually get that life by holding on to it and, and remaining in control of it. It seems like it can, but all you can get is a little life. I mean to give you a real, big, abundant, full life. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. If I can put those words from Luke 9 in the words of my analogy here. Whoever gives up his Saturdays will get back Saturdays with me. But if you don't give up your Saturday, all you get is Saturday. Too bad. Do you get that? If you give up your Saturday, you get back Saturday with me. But if you don't give up your Saturday, all you have is Saturday. Too bad. That makes no sense unless Jesus is everything. If Jesus, is, if Jesus is nothing, then who cares? What I just said is meaningless. Do you realize Jesus, Jesus himself, Jesus is life. Of necessity, Jesus is described with words on a page in the Bible. And so it is easy for us to think of it as just facts. Things I know about Jesus. But he is described with words on a page 
has to be that way. But what God means to do is, is by the ministry of his Holy Spirit in us, take the facts and make them live in our minds so that the person of Jesus is introduced to us. And we meet and walk with the person of Jesus. And the person of Jesus, as he is described, is not just theoretically beautiful. He is beauty. He is not one who behaves lovingly. He is love. And what he tells us is, you got to give up everything. you got to put all of your life in front of me and surrender all of it. And what you get out of that is me. You get me out of that. You get fellowship with me. You get communion with this Jesus, the one who was God in, in, in all of eternal glory, who came to earth as a man to save you. If we don't give up our Saturdays, we don't get him in our Saturdays. We just get Saturday. But he means for us to get a life that is full and abundant, a life that is lived in communion with him, the one who is good, the one who is beauty, the one who is love, and the one who then leads us on into a mission that is fascinating and exciting and challenging and, in fact, thrilling. A life that is about the kingdom business that he himself is committed to and wants us to be a part of. Filled with the Spirit, sensitive to and enjoying his empowering leading, maybe at a soccer match. As you play soccer, as though not about soccer. You must give over your calendar. And you must evaluate it Evaluate how you use your time intentionally and, and accidentally because we just kind of drift into things sometimes. So evaluate it often before God. Prayerfully and mindful of the shortness of time. We don't know, we don't know what is the length of this period, but, it, but there, is a, there is a period that has been shortened and we pray and are to be about Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done. That, that's what we're asking Jesus to do, and that's what he's calling us to participate with him in. So we evaluate our schedules and, and our time in light of the shortness of time and in light of his prayer and his mission. And it may be that as you do that, you will discover that Jesus calls for change. Maybe. So ask yourself, is your time so full of self-serving things devoted to the pursuit of the American dream? Do you find yourself, as you evaluate it before God, convinced that, yeah, here in these ways, I am seeking to make a life for myself. I'm, I'm living under the influence of, controlled by, and for this stuff. And trying to build my kingdom with it. Maybe, maybe in part, maybe you find yourself committed to just yourself or just your own family or just other Christians to the exclusion of non-Christians who live all around you. And then maybe something needs to change. That could be you. So ask him. I, I can't say you have to ask him. But on the other hand, as you evaluate it, you might not have to get rid of much of anything at all. Maybe you just need to change how you approach the time slots and calendar items that you already have. You may need, the change that may need to happen is you may need to realize that the kingdom mission of Jesus already exists right there on your current calendar. You're just not living as a follower of Jesus there in that time slot. When you're at church, sure. When you're at the prayer meeting, sure. But Saturday morning soccer, nope. You're just there to play soccer. End of story. 
you don't realize that that also is the front line of the kingdom battlefield. They're at the soccer game. As you could either play soccer as if all consumed with soccer, or you could play soccer as if not about soccer itself, but about worshiping God and, and giving thanks for the good that he has given you, soccer, an athletic body, and the ability to run, and, and freedom to do so. And use it as a way to glorify God and, and as a pointer ahead. We talked about this all last week. And as a pointer ahead to the, the good things that he will give you that will not pass away. And as you think about, and beforehand, proactively, prayed for the conversations you would have with all the non-Christian parents on the sideline with you. And taught your kids about all those same things. And taught your kids to look at the non-Christian teammates that they are playing with. And to think about, how do I love them? And how do I respect them? And how do I care for them? How do I think about approaching them? That's on mission at soccer. Maybe that's all it needed to change. Maybe you don't actually need to get rid of soccer at all. Or vacation. Or date night. You don't need to get rid of date night. You don't need to stop chasing little kids around the house and feeding them and changing their diapers. You don't need to stop going to youth games or playing around to golf. Maybe you don't need to cut any of that out of your schedule. Maybe you do, but maybe you don't. Maybe the thing that needs to change is how you approach that item in your schedule, what mindset you are bringing into it. Are you committed to praying for those situations and living alert in them and walking with Jesus into them as you go to your job and as you interact with other people? It may be that as you look at some things, as you evaluate your schedule and do so regularly, that you see, given the shortness of the time, I don't have the time for this. And it goes away. But it may be that given the shortness of the time, I need to be about God's work in this thing. That may be about God's work all by yourself. It may be about God's work with a member of your family or with another Christian or with a non-Christian. The kingdom, is, it's the ultimate guerrilla war. It's happening everywhere all at once. But the point is, Engage everywhere, always. And such deliberate thinking and praying and deliberate actions that follow, it, and it is, it is deliberate, it demands focus. We don't just like stumble into that. But to think like that and to walk like that requires that we see Jesus as glorious that we see Jesus as the one who fills our hearts because that's going to be work it's, it's going to be work and if that's if that's all we are focused on the, the looking at our schedules and the taking command of our schedules and, and the, the thinking of the task and the people and we never think about Jesus this work will become burdensome And ironically, it won't be worshipful. We have to take all of this and put it before Jesus and say, Lord, I see you and I see you as good. I see you as the one who yourself, as we saw in Luke, of necessity embraced suffering and rejection and the cross for me. So when you call me into this, you're already ahead. You've called me to follow you into this. To keep my eyes on you as I walk into this. Make me sensitive to you and to your leading. In other words, fill me with your spirit and have your way with me. Direct me and control me. Show yourself to me and show your path to me and lead me to walk it for my gain for my profit. And he will say yes to that.
Let me say yes to that. He wants you to profit. That's why he's told you how to get it. Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. And if you give away your life, you will save it. Let me pray. Lord, help us to live surrendered lives for your sake. Would you grow in us a great, great, a greater than we current have, a great, great desire to save our lives? And would you then convince us of how that actually happens? Would you give us faith to see how that actually happens? We save our lives and we give them away to you. Cause us to grow in that, please. For the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of your honor, and for our own great good. Cause us to grow in that, please. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.